Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and our guest this week is Will Clark, a first assistant director whose credits include Django Unchained, The Hateful Eight, and the upcoming film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. In our conversation, we discuss a number of topics, from the creative responsibilities that assistant directors have between the pre-production all the way through filming, Will's 20 years relationship with director Quentin Tarantino and their experience working together on films like Kill Bill and Inglorious Bastards, the logistical challenges of recreating 1969 Los Angeles for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and much more. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Mr. Clark, again, thank you so much for, for being here and uh, joining us on the show. It's really a pleasure. We're going to be discussing a, a number of specific projects, but I'm definitely interested in asking you about your creative process and specifically, if we can start at the beginning, talking about the duties of a first assistant director when it comes to pre-production. You know, receiving and breaking down a script. You had this to say about the process. Quote, before production, the first AD takes the script and breaks it down to all the elements involved, the actors, the locations, the sets, the props, special effects, and he places them into a shooting schedule. It is our responsibility to factor the elements into how to schedule a film, how to make it happen, and that takes time. I know, obviously, every project is different, has its own challenges, but just to begin with, I was curious what has been for you the most efficient way to approach and break down a screenplay when you do receive it, and how do you creatively try and put together your first draft of, of a shooting schedule? Well, it's very basic. You know, I... It's changed a lot over time with me as well. When I first started, you know, I had all the highlighters that you may learn in your class when breaking down a script. You know, your props are blue and you highlight the cast pink and you underline the background and you do different things and you notice costumes and, and I would put everything in there. It was really Herculean effort to break down a script when I first started. Now, as time has gone by and it's nearly 30 years later, the first pass is a much easier process for me. I'm largely focused on the cast, touching on the background, pertinent vehicles if necessary, but really just breaking down the fundamental elements. The cast, location if you know it, most of the time you don't at this process, but the set, day, night, things of that nature. So you could just get a scene order strip board, a strip board that's in scene order because you have to number the script as well in part of this process. This way you can develop a uh, day-night breakdown so I can go over it with the director. And that is also an important process when it comes to scheduling because you don't want to schedule five different script days in the same day because you're wasting time with all the wardrobe changes and all potential makeup changes and depending upon whether it's an action picture or not, what the impact of the action that has already happened on an actor's face or clothes or anything of that nature. So now I break it down to just the essential elements to get that first pass done. And I worry far less about the smaller elements. You know, the prop person is going to do a better prop breakdown than I will ever do. It's their job, and they break down all the personal props. And also in conversations, sometimes the prop director will have, you know, or a costume designer for the girls walking down the stairs, and the script says in her vibrant green dress. And then the costume designer and the director are talking in a conversation, which I'm not privy to, and they say, yeah, you know, with her skin complexion, vibrant green is just, it's the wrong, it really should be red. And I'm not going to change the script, but it's a red dress. And in the breakdown, there's a green dress. And then on the day, the second AD puts down a green dress. And then there's a panic because I had a conversation with him and it was a red dress. You know, she changed it to a red dress. The director changed it to a red dress. Is it a green dress? I don't have a green dress prepared. To avoid all that aggravation, I keep it simple. I keep it very simple. I keep the breakdown simple. I start adding elements of the breakdown as we go through the process with the director and the different departments and the cameraman. And then I start adding things to the breakdown. So it's... Rather than starting big and paring down, I start small and make it bigger Absolutely. as we go. And I find that to be more efficient. Whereas when I first started, I was everything was gung-ho. Had to have everything in there. Had to know everything. You know, you don't. You, you need to know everything, but you don't need to put it all down on a piece of bed. Not everybody needs to know everything. Right. How many pointers do you get from the producer? Do you worry 
at all about what certain limitations are going to be, or do you just simply approach what you think would be the best? Well, if I have those limitations, certainly I'll put them into the first pass. I generally try to make as director-friendly as I possibly can. You know, some basic rules. You try to get the, the number one on the call sheet working on the first day, preferably alone if you can, so the director and the actor can continue building that rapport that they had started in the rehearsal process but also just to get the wheels moving and see the process so they understand how working with each other is going to be because that's going to increase the fluidity of the production throughout if that relationship is good. You know, and also trying to stay as much in sequential order for the director. It's always easier to tell a story if you start at the beginning. So you try to figure that in. Now the producer will tell you, you know, look, Brando can only work for the four weeks in July. In August, he's got to be somewhere. In, in June, he's got to be somewhere. He's got the four weeks in July. And if you have that information, you obviously have to put it right in because why waste time? When you allow for a schedule to evolve, what I think is to be imagined is that obviously crew and cast energy does change. You're gaining chemistry among the crew, but you're also gaining fatigue. And as you go on, on weeks and weeks and weeks, people get tired. I'm curious to ask you, what is your feeling in regards to allowing a schedule to evolve in terms of energy? And, and what is your feeling between 10-hour days and 12-hour days? And at the same time, because this, this is a conversation I always fight over, five-day weeks as opposed to six-day weeks. A 10-hour day, for obvious safety reasons, is is always preferable. Again, our cast member we just learned is only available for four weeks in July. And that cast member is getting paid $8 million for those four weeks in July. And if we go over one day, we got to pay an extra $100,000 and get a private jet to get them to the next thing. So we can't afford to do that. And that sometimes boxes us into a corner where we have to prepare for a longer day. And preparing for a longer day is very important because if you know it's going to be over those 12 hours, you have to work with the line producer and the producers and say, look, we got to get Brando out of here. We got to get out of here tonight. We're going to try to do it in 12 hours, but really it looks more like 13, 14 to me, quite honestly. We should prepare hotel rooms, you know, make sure that we know where to send people if they're tired. We're going to come back here the next day, so we have to have a plan in place to keep the crew safe. We are diving into the fact that schedule, I think, can really, really impact budget. If you could give an example of how creativity and limitation has helped you sometimes receive a very big sequence and having to work with your creative mind and, and trying to make that work with the money or time given. There's different factors. There's a difference between a $100 million movie and solving those problems and a $5 million movie and solving those problems. And I've done ball. You know, I've run the gamut on $500,000 movies way back when, you know, to $100 million movies just last week. So, and I still do, you know, 10 million, you know, I'll do whatever. If the piece compels me or the individual who's directing the piece compels me, I'll do it because I like it because I, I love making movies. So, but a great example of having to find the solution, Christoph Waltz and the, uh, and the dentist wagon. Hmm. And, and Django. And Django. If you read the original script, there's no dentist wagon. He rides up on a horse. But he had had an accident. He had fallen off a horse in training. And so he had to recover a little bit from an injury that he had. And we were unable to put him on a horse until, I believe it was January at the time, and we were starting shooting in November. So what are we going to do about this? You know, I sat down with the director. We went and we sat down again. And I just was like, you know... Is it weird if he has a wagon? You know, the, the guys say he can drive a wagon. I mean, is, is it weird if he's got like some kind of snake oil thing? He goes, hmm, let me think about that. That's interesting. I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. And so he goes away for the weekend, comes back the next Monday with a Quentin glyphic sketch of what this dentist wagon should be with this big tooth on top. And I'm like, that's brilliant. This, this guy never ceases to amaze me. This is comedic. It's dramatic. It tells the story of him being the dentist. I mean, it, it seems completely natural. And then let's blow the thing up. Let's stick dynamite in the tooth. I mean, it all, none of that would have happened without the schedule conflict of Christoph being able to get back onto the back of a horse and us needing to shoot before he's able to get back onto the back of a horse. These things that pigeonhole you into making a decision that you didn't want to have to make can force you to find a creative solution that is better than your original idea. I'm Dr. King Schultz. This is my horse, Fritz. What kind of doctor? Dentist. 
Now, are you the Speck Brothers? And did you purchase those men at the Greenville slave auction? So what? Now, amongst your inventory, I've been led to believe, is a specimen I'm keen to acquire. Hello, you poor devils. Is there one amongst you who was formerly a resident of the Karukan Plantation? I'm from the Karukan Plantation. What's your name? Django. Then you're exactly the one I'm looking for. Part of being a first AD, what you're doing a lot of times is as the schedule is evolving, things are changing and you got to deliver under pressure. You know, the schedule changes. This is what you had to say about it. Quote, ideally you schedule the picture correctly. So you're not getting ahead and you're not falling behind. You have the time that you need for each of the scenes. When you're making a movie, you can't panic. You need to be well rested and must allow yourself to think with a clear head because you don't know what problems are going to come up. Close quote. So I want to- uh, I said that? You said that. God, I'm brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> so once you're deep into production, I was wondering how do you- sometimes try and reinvent a schedule to make up for the lost time? And what is that process after one day of shooting and before the other as you're going through an ever-evolving movie? Well, you see it coming. You see what's happening and you see how it's going and you know if, if you're going to need a little bit more time in this place. It's not a last-minute decision. You know, you've been around and so you see this coming and you're preparing for different scenarios as they go. Okay. You know, so you say, hey, you call the producer, the line producer, you get together with the director and often the cameraman because the cameraman has huge impact on all of these issues. So my relationship with the cameraman is almost as important as the relationship with the director and right there with the relationship with the producer and the line producer. We have to be in cahoots. You know, his team has to know what our agenda is for us to fulfill our game plan, which we put together together. You know, I, the cameraman, and the director, we put that game plan together, together. And so when it comes time to adjust, you know where the potential pitfalls are going to be, and you hopefully have already thought of potential solutions. I always know what plan B will be before we even begin plan A, you know, before we even get into that process. And so adjusting it becomes a little bit your whole idea is to, okay, what if this happens? What if this happens? What do you do if this happens? And you go through these scenarios largely by yourself. So you have the answers prepared when it does become a problem and you fix it. And I love that. That's one of my favorite things is when you already have the problem solved. And then by the time everybody's learning, it's a problem. And you say, you know, here's what we're going to do. What do you think? That's that's great. Yeah, okay, that'll work. Yeah, we can definitely use the room in the hospital that was next to the room we're shooting in for this bedroom, and we can skip this whole bedroom scene and focus more in the living room. That's great. Why didn't you say that in the first place? Well, I want to see if you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, part of the job is being prepared for what you're not prepared for and seeing what those red flags are going to be before they happen. Absolutely. And solving the problem before it happens. Well, I'm going to ask you a little bit about your relationship with your second AD and your third AD or second second, because I think it's always interesting to observe how much one delegates for perhaps prepping the call sheet for the next day while you're focusing on what the director and the cameraman need today. What is that little team relationship like? Again, like every answer to every question you ask, I think it varies from movie to movie. On this last one, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I wanted a second AD because there was so much so much preparation, so many cast members, so much rigging and different things that we had to be prepared for in different, very sensitive locations that I really wanted somebody who would work very closely with the uh, line producer and the production manager, who would be almost a surrogate production manager. I can run the set. I'll do fine on the set. And I got other people that I'll need the set. I want to make sure that all of the pieces that are necessary are in place for the things that are coming up. And when you have a lot of pieces, it's a hard job. And so I hired a guy named Chris Sadler, and he's great. He's going to be my boss someday, real soon, because he was a perfect person for that type of, of situation. Lots of elements, keeping all the paperwork together, keeping all of the staff, understanding what's going on, this sensitivity of the material, which we discussed before we started the interview you know, keeping that tight and, and delegating those specific duties to the different people. And I'll take care of the set. I'll take care of what's going on on the set. On this one and the last one, I used the second second, again, because we had massive locations that involved, you know, oodles of streets and night and period vehicles and all sorts of stuff. So I used an assistant director for that. But often on smaller movies, I'll find a, a gung-ho PA to be my right-hand man. 
you know, and I'll let the second and the second second, the second roaming the set all the time, making sure the perimeter and the best boys and all this are getting all the crap that they need for the days that are coming up and they have all their ducks in a row and we have it all written down so the office is understands what it is they need and why they need it. So because sometimes, you know, Joe line producer decided that we didn't really need that BB light that the best boy electric said we needed. And that message never gets. And then you're there on the day. And where's the big ass light that the camera It's not there. What? Oh, shit. You got a big problem. Yeah. So you prevent that from happening. Well, you obviously got to approve the call sheet before you guys send it out, but do you also have a director like Quentin approve it? I, you know, it's not so much of a process of here's this Excel document, look at it, make sure you love it. You know, it's... Uh, More hey, about the content. Yeah, hey, yeah. hey uh, Brando, we're going to start with uh, scene 17, which is him walking into the barbershop. So we'll start outside in the morning. I'm going to bring him in at 7 a.m. You know, I just go through the broad strokes and then we're going to be in the barbershop. We'll be in the barbershop for most of the day for 18 and scene 18 and 19. I'm going to give the barber a later set call. They have to shave him. They have to give him the mustache he wanted. He'll have a set call of nine after we do the exterior. And then we were going to use the back bathroom as the interior of the bathroom for scene 106 where the guy's in there and he's shaving, you know, doing that. And we're going to use the back bathroom of the barbershop for that. That's the last scene of the day. Sounds good. Great. You know, they, Great. they don't always, they're not, they, sometimes you, you can tell when you're being yes. And then if you feel like you're being yes, you allow it to happen. And then you bring it up again later, you know, at the end of the day or whatever, because you can change call times. The director has to come comfortable that they're going to achieve the day in the best possible way they can. So they get the material that they need to make the movie great and the time that they need to do it. And you're making sure they're prepared and on the same page as you and what you are, because you are the crew now. You know, when you're on the same page with me, you're on the same page with the, the cameraman, with the gaffer, with the line producer, with the key grip, with the sound guy, with the prop guy, with the costume department, with the makeup department. You're on the same page when you tell me that you're okay. Now, my job is to make sure that all those other people are on the same page too. And this is what we're going to achieve, and this is how we're going to achieve it. It was a teenage wedding, and the old folks wished them well. Since we're, we, we touched on it, I figured I would expand a little bit. We talked about relationships with directors in general, and I was just curious to ask you about your relationship with Quentin. Quote, Quentin is a storyteller. He creates these stories and then he commits them to film. He began by using the cinematic influences he had watched and learned about, but evolved into creating a style of his own. And when he's on a set, Quentin's also a chatter. Close quote. Again, it just sounds like the sets that you guys run are as everyone says, a lot of fun. You know, I've, I've seen amazing videos of you guys slating with directors' names, uh, which requires a lot of creativity, frankly. It's um, mostly Quentin. <laughs> Does he demand it? Well, we, we didn't do it on the We, we did it uh, quite a bit on Hateful Eight. And we do it on all the different movies. You know, it always goes in there when you get into double letters, you know, from AA on, A-B-A-B-N-A-C. And uh, rather than Apple Baker, which he hates, you know, it's so boring. And boredom is never good. He likes to, you know, you have to come up with a director, and he always comes up with director. Her, him or Marty Katrasser, the script supervisor, who's another film historian, and Bob sometimes, but Bob doesn't participate as much because Bob's a little busy getting this stuff together. And all these guys are film historians, and they know all of these different people and get all of the directors in there for the slate. And we just try to have, you know, he just likes to have fun with it. Viva Bastar 66 Amazing Adventure, take one. 79 fucking explosives, take four. Fucking action. Filmmaker, take two marks. Clean Eastwood, take one. De Niro, take two. Danny DeVito, take three. Or Akira Kurosawa, David Lynch. Jarmusch. Ciro Santiago. Frank Capra. Atom Megoyan. Dennis Hopper. David Cronenberg. Chris Nolan. Darío Argento. Fritz Lang. Eli Roth. Modovar. Brian De Palma. Francis for Coppola, take one mark. I was curious to ask you a little bit about, we mentioned, again, you and Quentin and, and Bob Richardson, how, not only what the energy of the set is, but how do you guys like to run generally a day in regards to hours of preparation, rehearsal first, lighting first, and when you guys get to work with each other again and again, what do you think you work so well as a team? It's been so long now. It's, it's hard to uh, remember what it was like way back when, but we all get along really well. We all have a real genuine sense of humor and love of that humor. And we make fun of people, each other, and 
we laugh a lot, but we're also very focused. You know, I mean, this is, it's pretty high level stuff that we're doing compared to uh, a lot of the other things that are happening. And there's a focus that we have, but we also, you know, we like to keep it light. We like to keep it fun. And Quentin is really special in the way that um, you know, he's an only child. So this, this film crew kind of becomes his family in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I used to joke with him that, you know, We've gotten much better at it, but our last days of movies always used to be marathons. And it wasn't because we had to get this important stuff. It wasn't because of all, you know, this was really critical and really important and we can't come back and do it tomorrow. It's just when it's over, this is over. And he's not going to see the third hammer who have wore the best dress on dress day for another several years maybe not ever you know because the way this business is people go off and do other things or whatever so there used to be a real sense of loss for him uh, i've sensed you know on jackie brown and on kill bill we've matured now you know we've gotten kind of past that and you know we understand we joke about it and i'm like and i'm not gonna you know i'm gonna schedule the insert of the teacup on the last day that's all we're gonna do the last day uh, you know because we don't want to get into any craziness and we actually did that on the last one we had a very light last day planned and we did a very light day and we had a great time on the last day and it was a lot of fun and you know we did like eight hours and everybody was over and hugging and kissing and crying and all that jazz. Is it just often just inserts or do you ever try and pick up, well, obviously sets often have been struck after you confirm that you have the scene, then you look at it, you're like, oh, we didn't quite get it. Maybe we should get, you know, a two shot of these guys. We'll just put a fake backing. Do you even try and reshoot not just inserts, but pieces of dialogue? Does that ever happen? Yeah, it happens. You know, you try to avoid that, obviously, because that costs money to recreate even portions of set, especially if you've uh, already taken down. It takes time, and ideally you've got a legitimate day scheduled every day. You're not trying to schedule light days so you can go home early. It's not effective and doesn't help the movie. So you try to avoid that type of stuff, but sure, sometimes you know it happens. It could be a scratch. It could be the lab. It could be sound. It could, who knows what it could be. It can be, you. sometimes you have to reshoot stuff. You find a way and you may have to sacrifice something that's less important to squeeze it in. Or again, you have the discussion with the producers, hey, we got to go back and get this. This is going to be three hours into our already 10 hour, 11 hour day. Let's look into some hotel rooms for people and rides we can get so they're driving safely or getting to and from safely. So you just have to weigh those pros and cons, and then sometimes you have to make difficult choices. I was asking earlier, curious if, if you could go into the specifics of usually what is your day-to-day -day routine in regards to how early do you and Quentin like to arrive? Do you rehearse first? Do you block first? Do you Again, it, it changes day-to-day. -day. It depends upon when we wrapped the night before. It depends upon what actors we use the night before and if we're in the same location. With somebody like Quentin in particular, who's not really a morning person per se, you know, if we're at the same location where we're going to be and I have those actors, I'll wrap the company and try to get 15, 20 minutes of rehearsal then. So the next morning I say, if we do this, you can come in an hour later. And he's like, okay, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's get it. Let's do it. Let's do it. And it's, so he'll take the hour later call, you know, because if I know what we're shooting, what he'd like to do for the first sequence of the day and how he'd like to get that scene started, I can do that. Me and Bob will do that. Me, you know, me and the cameraman, if it's not Quentin and other movies, we'll get that ready. So try to get the director a little extra rest because it's exhausting dealing with all these people every day, all the egos and all the all the minutia uh, as well. I don't know much about your process in regards to how you like to cover grabbing a dialogue scene, for example. I can imagine that Bob is mostly the single cam kind of person in regards well, to Quentin the way is and Bob follows. Bob prefers it as Bob well. Because you can light specifically for a camera and you're not trying to compromise on, on that. The big concern with having a B camera for auteurs and artists of this nature, and plenty of them are fine with it. You know, Peter Burke puts cameras freaking everywhere, you know, and says, okay, go action you know and do it but uh you know, quentin's not that he's he's far more specific and if you have your a camera set and you try to bring in a b camera and you're like oh well the b camera's not good let's can we just slide it just move a camera over a little bit a camera's not what it was then you moved your hero shot as a compromise to get your second shot that you may or may not use that you may way. or may not use yeah may, and that's that's not the way that's not the way these guys like to operate they're, they're composed the frame Shoot the frame. Don't worry about the B camera. There are certain times, you know, with you know, when we set P 
people on fire and obviously you're going to get multiple cameras and find the best positions for all of them because you can only burn people so many amounts, amounts of times. But um, in general, you know, you want to cover your scene. You want to get your nice wide master and sometimes that's not even totally useful because you're not going to be in it. You shot the whole scene in a master, you're probably not going to use the whole master. But what that does is it sets the tone, the pace for the festival, you know, for the actors working together. It allows the director to get some critical direction for when we get in closer, underway, and creates a, a flow for the rest of the scene for when you do come into the coverage and get tighter coverage and different things. It also highlights potential changes of blocking. I hate that he's standing in front of a window. The other person should be in a window. Let's switch everything around. Put her on this side, him on this side, because I want the window behind her. You find that out in the rehearsal, and then when you're in the environment for real, rehearsing again, and then sometimes you even change it a little bit after you shoot that first that first master. And then you can then you can do that because you're going in for coverage. Allow me to ask you quickly about three projects before we begin wrapping things up. The first one being Glorious Bastards, because I am fascinated by the idea that you guys have an entire production which is shooting in Europe for once you've obviously Kill Bill shot all over the place but for my understanding a good chunk is is shooting at the Babelsberg studios and I was curious to ask you about the challenges of having a Europe-based production I don't know how much you guys shot in Paris. It sounds like there was a little bit, but not a lot. A couple of days. Because the irony, and this shows the dedication that you guys have, correct me if I'm wrong, but you have the scene with um, Daniel Brühl in the cafe, which it could have been, you know, in Germany. Which cafe? All... With Shoshana or? With Shoshana. Yeah. Yes, and that's in the heart of Paris, you know, and you have extras have to come in and vehicles and dressing. Again, I'm sure it was chosen for the specificity of the architecture of the set, but how are you managing companies? moves, how are you trying to manage going from Babelsberg, a contained environment, into the woods of Germany where you may be shooting scalping scenes? Is there an order and a logic to how you like to organize something that is initially foreign to you as a country? Well, not really. I mean, fortunately, the, the wheel is the wheel and it's pretty universally round throughout the world. So there's a different lack of experience, not so much in Europe. I mean, Europe, they're all professionals, and the German crew was great. It took them a minute to understand our relationship, me, Bob, and Quentin, with regards to you know, being lunatics and all that jazz. You know, our lunacy, they didn't understand. You know, with regard to moving the company, it's just like here, you know, you put in, you send out the riggers a couple of the day before, so pre-cabled, pre-wired, some power can get to everywhere, and we can get it quickly and efficiently, and, you know, the trucks come, and the makeup truck, and the hair truck, and the grip truck, and they take a little bit of a pre-call to get all their shit out, so they can move it, oh, shit, I mean that in the most affectionate of ways, if any key grips or gaffers are listening, they move, you know, their stuff to where we're going to be doing the scene. We rehearse the scene and we shoot the scene and then they pick up the stuff. They leave some stuff behind so the riggers can come after us and clean it up as well. You know, and obviously locations. You work with locations to make sure that we have the access that we need. And you talk about it beforehand. You know, it's all worked out. Jumping from country to country is a bit of a different animal because now you got to deal with customs and all that jazz and maybe you have to get a separate package that's waiting and so we got to hire an AC to go and prep that package and they got to go to Paris and take care of all that so we can touch down and get to shooting and not have to wait for this or that the other thing it's never like New York and Los Angeles where it's crack 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 these people are amazing uh, and we move so fast and we work so hard but um it's close. It's a, it's a round wheel, and it's round around the world. And hut! My name is Lieutenant Aldo Rain, and I'm putting together a special team, and I need me eight soldiers. Eight Jewish American soldiers. We're going to be dropped into France, dressed as civilians. Once we're in enemy territory, we're going to be doing one thing, and one thing only, killing Nazis. Sound good? Yes, sir! Really, you're trying to keep everybody, you know, you were trying to keep it moving and productive. I like five-day weeks because we do, you know, 12 hours a day, you know, is still 60-hour week. That's a pretty healthy work week. You know, having that day off to just recover from the, the physical trauma of the past week. There was a point where I said, I'm only doing five-day week movies. I would prefer to only do five-day week movies, but... 
you know, I got a, I got a baby I got to feed. You know? <laughs> you know, because that second day off is really an opportunity to take care of some of the things in your life. But the Chinese don't take, they shoot for 30 straight days. You go to China, these, they'll work for 30 straight days and get it done. And yeah. it's just the way they do it. 30 day weeks. 30 day week. You know, I, I did a couple of things in China. They were like, this is like a vacation, a five day week. This is like a vacation for us. You know, we just did another movie, a kung fu movie. We shot in the Chendao province, and we wanted to get the heck out of there. The person didn't want to be there. We shot 30 straight days, 28 straight days. And then we took a week off, and we came back, and we shot for another 15 straight days in Beijing. Oh, my God. It's just, it's just what they do. When you're on location in Germany or Paris, do you try and schedule time for yourself and Bob and Quentin to review dailies? Is that part of your week? Oh, yeah. At Babelsberg, we, we, it's a studio, so... We would just wrap and walk over to the little theater there and watch the dailies. And so often at lunch in New Orleans on Django, we built a theater on the stage. It's not too hard to really build a theater. You black out the walls. You put a projector behind a screen with a hole so it can fit and you put up a screen. And then we put couches around there. And Quentin's very loose with the dailies compared to most directors. He loves the crew watching what they've done. He feels it's good for morale. He feels they should be proud of what they've achieved. And they should see so they could feel that pride. And so they come back to work the next day or after lunch because we'll screen them after lunch two, three times. You know, dailies from the previous day. And everybody can go in and watch. And the, it was the Sergio Carbucci Theater. When we shot in Telluride on Hateful Eight, we rented a hall and made it a theater. And we would go at the end of the day and we'd go watch dailies for projected on film, which is very important to him as well. But then there's also all the movies now. You get the little DVD. And you put it in, and that's less exciting because you're watching on your, in your living room. But it's important to do because then you do, like you mentioned before, know that you need a pickup. You need something else from that scene. It, it was complete, but when we put it together, I really need the foot on the gas pedal. You know, I really need the shift, the gear shift. I really need her spinning that T. She didn't look surprised. I, I need to go back and get a close-up of her. How close, you know? And so... It's a very important part of the process. I learned a ton with Quentin's method of dailies for everybody. Pulp Fiction was really the first opportunity that I had to go to dailies. Uh, imagine that joy. So, you know, I'm king of the PAs, you know, running around sweating all day. I'd get done and drive to photo camera wherever we were watching. At the time, sometimes it was even at Quentin's. And I would try to sit in front of him and Sally Menke so I could listen to their conversations as we're watching the dailies. Now, Quentin's not so great with that because he's having a good time. He's not really talking about work. He's having a good time enjoying what we do, what we've done in dailies. Not saying, I'd like to cut it here and I'd like to put it there. This will be the opening shot of the scene. Those conversations aren't happening so much. Ladies and gentlemen, now the moment you've all been waiting for, the world-famous Jackrabbit Slim's Twist Contest. We also touched on Hateful Eight, and what the reason I think it, it would be interesting to talk about that is trying to observe having location work done first, and then you move to the studio second. In Hateful Eight, you started in December of 2014 in Colorado, you were mentioning Telluride, and then you later move into stage work. What's the thought process behind, generally, behind something like that? Is it, is it about snow? Is it about weather? And so then you can comfortably and take your time when you do move to the studio and do that part of that shoot? In this case, this was also a scene order scenario, you know, that they arrive, you know, and they have to get there. And so the scene starts with them going to the spot. So it made sense for us to start there, but it was also snow. We needed snow. You know, on that film, we did three separate call sheets a day because the weather was so unpredictable. So, you know, we would have our snow call sheet. If snow is falling from the sky, here's where we're going to be and what we're going to do. If it's cloudy, here's where we're going to be and what we're going to do because we can, you know, we can fake the storm in clouds. We can't do it in sunshine. So if it's snowing, here's what we're going to do. If it's cloudy, here's what we're going to do. And if the sun is out, we're going to go into the haberdashery and here's what we're going to do. We had a different scenario prepared for each day and I would normally make that decision when we first arrived, you know. We would have an idea the day before, but 
there are the stars, sun's gonna be out, we're going into the haberdashery. This is snow, look at this snow, the snow is great. We're gonna be on the road, you know, Gladstein Freeway, up on the ridge, and we're gonna get the stagecoach driving by, warm up the stunt people. So we would prepare that, and then we had to get them into the room, and then we, our original plan was really to just shoot, because the windows were so important to the story, everything that happened in the daytime on location. You know, obviously some pickups we might need because we, we have less latitude with uh, wall removal and ceiling removal on location. There was some because we built that haberdashery at the top of the mountain. It's not like it was existing. It was a solid structure, but we could still pull out different pieces. We had a wall that opened. It was on a hinge, so we would be able to do things of that nature. But we got to a certain point where um, it just felt like, you know, we're waiting for snow, you know, because it was a bad snow year. So we waited for snow. We were getting so far into the haberdashery that we were starting to go further than we had hoped on location as we're waiting for snow. And finally, we got our last snow. We got the snow. We got the fuck out of there. And let's get back to town so we can really start focusing on what's going on inside the haberdashery. And then as night falls, the windows became less of a factor. One of them fellas is not what he says he is. What is he? In cahoots with this one, that's what he is. One of them, maybe even two of them, is here to see Domergoo goes free. Are you sure you ain't just being paranoid? He won't have the leather patience it takes to just sit here. He'll stop waiting, try and create his opportunity, and that's when Mr. Jumpy reveals himself. And what you got to say about all this? What do I got to say about John Reese Raven? He's absolutely right. Me and one of them fellows is in cahoots. We're just waiting for everybody to go to sleep. That's what we're going to kill y'all. Because you have everyone contained in a certain space, I wonder, what was the rehearsal process for you guys in regards to, do you rehearse the whole movie or just like a regular production? Do you take it one day at a time? We did both. We had a relatively healthy rehearsal period here in Los Angeles in pre-production with all of the cast, you know, with all of the people in the room. Majority of the cast, you know, we didn't rehearse the uh, Channing Tatum portion, but we had, you know, the Sam Jackson, the Kurt Russell, the Jennifer Jason Lee, Daisy Domingo, the Walt Goggins, you know, we had all Tim Roth. We had all of the key, the eight, if you will, uh, nine with our stagecoach man. We basically rehearsed the first two acts, if, I, if memory serves, the first three, four chapters of the piece there on a taped out, real size, Minnie's haberdashery in a basement at uh, Sunset Gower Studios. And we did that for about three weeks. And at one point, Quentin's like, you know, we've gone far enough. I don't even want to rehearse anything because we're going to shoot this and then we'll see what we got. And then we'll know what the last act is going to be better. Any rehearsal we do now is not needed and counterproductive. So we rehearsed as they went through everything. Everybody was off books. I mean, these guys are such incredible professionals, just such great actors. It's unbelievable. What a joy just to watch these guys. And so we, we had all that rehearsed. But then, obviously, on the day, we would also rehearse because the blocking's going to change. Things change. And we've changed the set dressing around quite a bit in that haberdashery. You know, there's things that, if you watch closely, things move. And we knew we were doing it. You know, it wasn't a mistake. It was a conscious decision that Quentin would make because of the next event that he was setting up for two or three events later. And, you know, the rug on the wall doesn't matter. He needs the rug, so put it there. It's going to be there. And we, you know, we learned that as we go. So there was the big rehearsal period. Everybody's off book. Everything's great. Everybody's got a great idea of what we're doing. Then we take it in smaller chunks as we're going through and eat our way through the, the script in this case. Well, it sounds like it's a really, for you and for him, there's a love of this discovery process. You know, sometimes he talks about the writing of that film saying that sometimes he doesn't know, you know, as he's writing it, how it's going to end. And you have to adapt to it too. His intuition is unbelievable. His connection with uh, cinematic audience is like nothing I've ever seen. It's, it's really remarkable. So his innate intuition, his feeling for these things, I mean, because I, I don't know how familiar you are with the Kill Bill story, but there is no script where L Driver loses her second eye. In the script, the bride kills her. The bride kills her in Bud's trailer and buries her out in a rainstorm outside of Bud's trailer. There we are rehearsing Bud's trailer. You know, we had the Chinese guys, they're flying back and forth. And then we do this, and then we do that, and then we do this. And Quentin is normally very, very engaged in those kinds of conversations. You know, he doesn't 
pawn anything off to anybody. He's a participant in that fight rehearsal, in that blocking of the fight. You know, he doesn't say, Master, go ahead, show me what you guys come up with. I'm sure I'm going to love it. No, he's a participant. He's an active, active participant in every aspect of the film and certainly these action sequences. And he's just not engaged today. You know, I'm, I'm standing on the other side of the trailer and I'm watching him. And, you know, normally he's jumping back and forth with the Chinese guys. But today he's kind of looking right through the Chinese guys and they're flying back and he's not paying any attention or just not engaged in the way that I'm comfortable and used to him being. So, you know, I walk through Chinese flying Chinese guys and I'm like, dude, what's up? Come here, come here, come here. And we leave and, you know, we go and he's like, what if L doesn't die. What do you mean? What, what, what do you mean? What, what, I mean? I'm the AD, so I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, I got 150 people back there ready to start this fight and it's changing and that's making me perspire. And then I also know in three weeks, I'm going out to the desert to bury this bitch in the fucking rainstorm with effects and other, and that's all being prepared. I got to study. I'm like, well, that's a very interesting idea. You know, you got to keep all that in because you want to tell me what you're thinking. How could, how does she not die? You know, aside from everything we've got planned, story-wise, how, how does she not die? Thinking. Just hear me out. Just hear me out. What if they get into the fight, they do the whole thing, they do this, they do that, and the brother takes her other eye out and leaves her smashing around in the trailer blind in both eyes because both eyes have been pulled out one by Pai Mei and one by the bride and now she doesn't you know and I just think that's far more interesting and more fun what do you think I, said, I think that's hysterical and he tells me about the foot and she's that you know the umato stepping on the toe I'm like that's all that's all great you know that's that's all great stuff I love it. Do you like it better? Do you think that that will connect better? And he's like, yeah, I really do. I really do. He's like, what do we do? I'm like, well, we wrap. <laughs> we wrap today. You know, we've only been here an hour and a half, but we wrap today. We figure out what we want to do with this new fight. We come back tomorrow. We start it tomorrow. We pull the plug on all the shit that we got going out in Barstow with rain and all this. That'll save us some cash if we don't have to do that to put towards this with this is delay. And, you know, when we get this and you go home, you figure out exactly how you want to do it. Give me some hints as to what you're thinking so I can start this fight tomorrow. And But we have a week to do it. You know, we have two weeks to get this fight properly. So go home, figure it out, what it is you want to do. I'll get us started. Uh, and uh, Let me go get the producers in here and we'll start working on that plan. He's like, great. What a relief. That's much better. And so you adjust. And you you may, you know, you pull the rain out of Barstow. And you get the effects guys. And we start looking at different things that are going to break. He's going to throw her through this wall. And you call, you know, hey, Nicotero, K and B, makeup effects. We need an eyeball. And we're going to need it Friday, next Friday. You know, and you start putting all those pieces together. You go talk to the cast. Daryl, got a little news here. You know, and, He'll do that mostly, but uh, there are times he'll send you to do it because he doesn't want to deal with it or because he wants to talk to Uma, you go talk to Daryl or, you know, something of that nature. But it's, it's really exciting and it's fun. It's just fun. Even when there's changes, they can be frustrating and hair pulling, but really, nobody's going to see the schedule, man. Everybody's going to see the movie. To my right is Bounty Law series lead and Jake Cahill himself, Rick Dalton. And to my left is Rick Stutt double Cliff Booth. So, Rick, uh, explain to the audience exactly what it is a stunt double does. Actors are required to do a, a lot of dangerous stuff. <laughs> Cliff here is meant to help carry the load. Is that uh, how you describe your job, Cliff? What, carrying his load? Yeah, it's about right. <laughs> so the last project I wanted to ask you about is obviously Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I would like to keep this a spoiler-free conversation. Again, the movie opens July 26th, but it's again to allow, as we were saying, the audience to see it with fresh eyes. And there are fantastic videos of you guys shooting over the summer in Hollywood Boulevard. You know? Yeah, fans. Those are fans. A lot of, you know, put music videos together from the being out there. We have 1,500 people come watch us on that's amazing. the few days we were out there. I thought that's a whole, I can imagine that's a problem for you. I mean, as, as exciting as this is, you're also trying to be like, guys, be quiet. 
and be out of the shot and all of that. So something that was fun with regards to that, I knew we were going to get crowds. Georgia Kakandis, our line producer, also knew that we were going to get crowds. And we were very, something that was new for this picture. With regards to the quiet and the crowds and the things, and what I asked uh, from Christopher T. Sadler, my second AD, I said, find me PAs with charisma. You know, we're going to have 50 of them out there. You know, I don't want just some young filmmaker that is understanding technically and is going to be able to know when, I, you know, when Quentin needs coffee. Or this. I want people with personality because in order to win over the people who are watching, they have to be engaged with those people. They have to be entertaining those people. They have to become friends with those people. And then those people will do whatever they ask. So find me people with a sense of humor who can be loud, who can be gregarious, who can be fun to win those people over so they will do whatever I ask them to do whenever I ask them to do. And he did exactly that. And we had you know, 1,500 people moving from one side of the street to the other side of the street. The LAPD was amazed. They were like, I can't even believe how efficiently and effectively you guys got these people working with you. It's, I've never seen it before. Also knowing with all of these people in this new age, we were concerned about terrorism. You know, we were concerned about somebody coming and making a name for themselves on the news by interrupting what we were doing. And so we actually put together a plan to prevent that, which is something that was new and that I'll continue to do for all of the movies that I do from here on out. You know, obviously you want to keep the cast and crew protected at all times. That's just part of the process. But in this situation, I was concerned about the non-casting crew. I was concerned about the thousand-plus people that came to watch us and protecting them as well. So, you know, we parked trucks at the end of all the streets with cave bars in it, so they're heavy and, you know, so they can move. So traffic and emergency vehicles could still get by when, when necessary, but they can move into place when we needed them on wheels. So nobody can drive their van into whatever we're doing. You know, we tried to cover as much bases, which was great. And, and, you know, we safe down the line. It was great. Great shoot. We had a great time. Because what I was trying to understand is whether you're shutting down several blocks, you're dressing everything, but are you shutting down one block at a time as perhaps cars? No, are... we shut down the five blocks. We shut down from Highland to Whitney on a couple of nights, two or three nights. Uh, and we dressed both sides of the street largely that was early in the production and then the second stretch was from Whitley to Gower uh, and again another five blocks and we only did one side of the street for that one the side with the theaters with the Pantages and we didn't do the other side we didn't need the other side those are always exciting it's always fun being out in public and I mean we also shut down the 90 freeway and we also closed the 101 freeway for 15 minutes a pop middle of the day on a Tuesday and that's exciting stuff for me because, you know, it's not just stopping working with the police and stopping the traffic to do that. It's getting all the vehicles from 1969 to fill the 101 freeway. So you have to set up a game plan to get those vehicles in position in the 10 minutes you have to come for a rolling break on the 101 freeway. And same when you're closing down the whole freeway, how to spread out all that traffic. And then they're all 50-year-old cars. So one of them is going to break down. And, you know, what do you do? Can you fill it in? Is it a matching issue? It's all fun stuff. It's really... How do you reset when you're something like that? Do you just have vehicles go back? or? Well, I did it differently from uh, the 101 freeway and the 90 freeway. On the 90 freeway, I just... Because I owned the free, I had I owned the old freeway. I just had him turn around and drive the wrong way on the freeway. Amazing! <laughs> what a feeling! Yeah, that's great. That's a, that's a fun thing. On the one one, I had one became two and two became one, so they would get off the freeway, turn around, and then we had another set of area for them to wait because now northbound would now be southbound, and southbound would now be northbound. So we preserved parking so they had easy access on, you know, and, I, and then I would say, okay, let's start the rolling brake on the 101, and then the state patrol would tell me where the brake was and where it's getting close to being our freeway, and then I'd lock up Hollywood Boulevard and Bronson Avenue because we could see that, you know, from oh there, and, you know, set up the traffic, okay, get the cars into the street in Bronson, get them into the street in Hollywood, here come the cars on the freeway, and come on, southbound. Come on, southbound. And action, Brad. And then they go. Are you an actor? No, I'm a stump. Stump man. That's way better. Why is that way better? Actors are phony. Oh. They just say lines that other people write and pretend to murder people on their stupid TV shows. Meanwhile, real people are being murdered every day in Vietnam. We haven't like we haven't talked about the fact that you're also responsible for all things background. 
is it usually your responsibility to cue whether it's background talent or background vehicles in this case? Are you trying to get the big picture so that the director can look at the monitor and not having to worry about timing? Is that your responsibility? Uh, I normally take that responsibility on because I'm I'm good at it. I know how long things are going to take, you know, from A to B and what the timing will be, and I know what the director wants. So I can normally get it pretty quickly. But yeah, you, you cue the cast, you know, to all different things. You know, you give them the finger. Right. The, the little, you know, now, you know, go. And that's it. Action. Just for, for Hollywood Boulevard, I'll close this little segment, but, but what baffles me the most is the amazing work the art department did. Not only, obviously, the location manager has to talk with the businesses and all of it. How much time are you taking before you start shooting to bring in the production design team and have a day or two to dress everything? Is that part of your agreement with the city, shutting down and dressing, or can they do it without blocking Well, traffic? Rick Schuler, our location manager, really did a great job with uh, the city. You know, we went to a council meeting. We went to a Hollywood council meeting, and Quentin was gracious enough to come. And he sold his love letter to Hollywood at the council meeting, and they jumped on board with us. So that helps a lot. You know, if we have the city behind us, that's number one. That's great. That's important. The next is the police, making sure the police are aware. And I had what I had discussed, which was a bit of a departure uh, from normal procedure, was that we will have our head police officer, who you know, and then he'll parcel out all the other police work, but the one key guy or one key cop, I asked if he would come with us on the tech scout, which is a bit unusual. And he was like, Rick was like, why would you want to invite our policeman on the tech scout? I'm like, yes, I do. And this was because it was some epic stuff, some really monstrous things that we were looking to achieve. And I was going to need his help. And as much as he was aware of what we were trying to do, the better it is for us to achieve it. I also just want him to warm up to us. You know, I want him to hang out with us, have lunch with us, you know, and laugh with us. This way, now we have the city and now we have the police department. So if I have the city, I have the police department. Now Rick is going and starting to work with all the particular locations because everybody owns a different building. Some are hard, some are not so hard. Some are great, you know. Oh, that would be great. Can we keep our sign? You got to go over our sign. You know, others it's money and others it's I don't even want to be bothered. We have the city so we can do something else to make funky that store up so it's not so visible or it's camouflaged or we just put a big mural in front of it. We work out these scenarios and that takes some time and contracts and money. And then they get out there and they do it. And they, they were, I would say, more than two days for a lot of that dressing. A lot of dressing. Barbara and her team were, they were working hard. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it there. That your son? No, it's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. All <laughs> oh, the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, with the killing. A lot of killing. It's my understanding that you guys run a no cell phone set, which I think is brilliant and very difficult to ask of crews today. And and I wonder how much is that NDAs and, and safety and protecting the story and how much is just being focused? You know, let's not look at our cell phones and smartphones. Is that part of creating the camaraderie? Well, it really, it, it really began because they were relatively new, you know, throughout the past 25 years that we've been working together, they, they, there were no cell phones on Pulp Fiction. And the kids started coming around more regularly on Jackie Brown and then by Kill Bill, they were everywhere. But it started as a way not to interrupt a take. That was the genesis. Whose phone, why is somebody beeping? We're rolling, you know, there's Robert De Niro over there giving a great performance and your phone goes off back there because... You know, your dog has a hangnail or whatever. We, why is your phone even here? That's where it started. But as as it grew in importance, and it grew very important, I mean, we have a specific person whose job it is solely to make sure nobody brings their phone on the set. Checkpoint Charlie. He sits outside of the stage. And you give your phone. And if you don't, sometimes you can't get in. You know, if you don't have a phone to give in, we're not letting you in. Oh, it's on the truck. Okay, well, go get it off the truck. You know, or, or we know. And people... People now, they don't even bring it. You know, they do. They all leave them on the truck. They all leave them in the makeup trailer. Actors leave them in their trailer. You know, transport guys don't come on the set <laughs> because they know that they have a phone with them. It's become quite common knowledge. And what we've seen in that time in the transition from don't interrupt the take 
So people are more present. People are not, you know, you don't see people sitting in a corner, staring at their phone, texting, missing last looks. You know, you don't see these types of things. They're focused, they're present. It not only, in my opinion, not only creates a better creative environment, it's also safer, you know, because the person who's staring at their, sitting in the corner of the set staring at their phone is not looking at the C-stand that was improperly placed next to them. Whereas if they're sitting there and they're watching what's happening and a participant in the event, they say, hey, Bobby Grip, that stand's not locked. You know, you see stuff. You, you, you are a participant. You are an active participant rather than a piece of furniture that's interested in the electronic device that's in your hand. Now, we have to find a balance now because... Technology is also coming into the filmmaking process to serve, you know, with the iPads and previs and all this other stuff. So there's there's a balance in the future. But when we're shooting film and on Quentin sets, it's 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 a pleasure not having the phone. My last it also gives me an excuse not to return texts. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry if I don't answer for the I was next working. four months. <laughs> My last question to you is in regards to the creative opportunities that working as a first assistant director has given you. Once more, last quote of yours. Quote, on my early movie experiences, I thought I'd, I knew a lot more. Now I know. I know a lot less. Close quote. So why do you think you've continued learning so much as a first AD from project to project? What is the one thing about being a first AD that you think most people wouldn't be able to appreciate like you do? With regards to uh, learning from project to project, every movie there's something Something happens. There's a problem that I've never seen before that you have to solve. Every movie, something new that I have never seen before happens. Whatever it is, it could be funny, it could be good, it could be bad. Whatever it is, I'll just be like, oh, that's it for this movie. I have never seen that before. You know, th that's great. I love it. And so your problem-solving skills are constantly expanding, constantly expanding. You know, as I said there, when I first started, it was point and shoot. This is easy. This is fun. Why is it so difficult? The camera's pointing that way. You know the lockup's going to be that way. Why are you over there? It's common sense. And most of it is. I would say 75% of the actual process of making a film is common sense. Now, a lot of people lack common sense. So that's what makes people like me necessary. You just don't have the innate ability to, you know, okay, if the camera is pointing that way, there's a pretty fair chance that that's what we're going to see, you know, that direction. Not everybody has it. I don't know how, I don't know why, but just the common sense aspect of it. But then there's the other that expands with experience, knowledge, and, um, and failure to a certain extent. Oh, that's not going to work. I know what you're saying. I understand your argument. I thought it did 10 years ago when I did it. It doesn't work. So here what is what I think how yeah, we have to achieve. Here will be the best way. This is where we'll succeed. You know, early on, it was like, oh, I got this movie stuff down. This is it. And now I know things are constantly evolving. Things are always changing. There's always new circumstances. And there's always, you know, different movies bring different things to the table. Hateful Eight, snow. This is about snow. You know, when you're doing Point Break, you're not worried about snow. You know, it's a different it's tides and the tide moves 50 feet in the day. So we have to make sure that we're only shooting these two surfing scenes at 10 o'clock in the morning and four o'clock in the afternoon. That's the only options we have because at noon, the tide's going to be all the way out and the beach is going to look completely different. And so, you know, these are things you, you don't want to find that out on the day. You want to have a plan for that. These are relatively basic examples, but you know you gain that experience over time because you because you see different things that you didn't realize would even be a situation until you're right in that situation. You know, there's a difference between mountain and ocean. There's a difference between space and earth. There's a difference between a refrigerated set where you have to see the breath and a real set that's at 10,000 feet. You know, and you understand, you begin to learn these things. And the more and more that you learn, the more you realize, the less you really knew. I think being a first AD makes you a better director. Whether you do end up being a director or not, it's understanding that side of the organization and the creativity because there's a lot of it. So again, allow me to renew the question. What is the one thing about being a first AD that you think people don't appreciate that you love so much about, which has kept you so busy? Quentin Tarantino gave me a really nice compliment when I showed up uh, in Berlin because I wasn't able to start the movie. I had a situation back here in LA. I had to stay in LA and then they started and so I came a week and a half, two weeks into the movie. And we hadn't seen each other since Kill Bill in that time. He had done the movie down in uh, 
Texas with Rodriguez, and he had used Robert's AD. He'd also done the CSI and the ER in that time. He had done, and he had worked with a lot of different assistant directors. Even the gentleman who had started uh, Inglorious Masters, world-renowned, one of the greatest ADs in the world. And um, he's like, oh, "We're gonna, you know, come out with me tonight. We're gonna go out to, and I, I want to talk to you about, you know, what we're doing, what's going on." And he's like, you know, it's been a long time. I haven't seen you. It's good to see you. What I've learned in this time, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of ADs since we've last seen each other. Supposedly best in the world ADs. And what I've learned is that an AD is really a crew chief. They're a representative of the line producer and they're representing the crew as a chief of the crew. You are the only assistant director I've ever met. Ooh. That's pretty cool. That's kind of a nice thing to say. So I, I feel like that's often missed. You know, we are there to assist the director in achieving everything they want to achieve to tell the story that they were hired to tell. So understanding that story, having a context of what is important to the story as opposed to what's important to the schedule and being able to balance those two and put them into a, a format that the director can understand and work with is really an essential part of the process and often overlooked. Mr. Clark, you've been very generous with your time. I can't thank you enough for, for coming on the show. Yeah, and uh, we wish being you the here. Best Good luck to you guys. It's gonna, the next generation, tearing it up. I love it. And there you have it, folks. I would like to thank Mr. Clark for taking the time to meet me on the USC campus to record this episode. If you really like the podcast, please help us out and take a moment to subscribe, review, and share the show. It's what allows us to bring you new conversations every month. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access.